Let's uh, grab our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8 is where we will be. Continuing on in this interesting chapter. Lots to see. How about I go ahead and read what Tyler read for us again and open with a prayer. 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to start at verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now, finish doing it also. So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, for this time that we have to be gathered around it, to hear from you. And we ask that you would bless this time, help us to have our thoughts prompted, our our hearts convicted in ways that we need to change. Help us to understand how it is you would have us to apply what we study here this morning to our lives. And God, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people, and that by it we would all grow up into Christ-likeness, experiencing more and more of your love and truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an interesting section of 2 Corinthians. Again, in case you forgot, my favorite New Testament book, 2 Corinthians. It's an interesting section of this letter, and it has much to teach us about stewardship and devotion. If you're thinking or wondering what's, what's the theme of, of this part of the letter, because it seems like a bunch of information that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Well, it, it does need to be there. This is the Word of God we're looking at. This is what God has for us, what He has revealed. And it's going to be a theme over the next few weeks that we will be looking at the stewardship that we are to uh, take up as Christians and the devotion that we are to have as Christians. And there are several factors at play here. We have fundraising being a part of this section, integrity, wealth management, teamwork, all kinds of interesting stuff. And I think we'll probably touch on each one of those things even here this morning. But it's quite fascinating, and I would say it all boils down to stewardship and devotion. Well, let's uh, back up and zoom out a little bit and consider what Paul is exactly talking to these Corinthians about in this section, what his matter of business is. One of Paul's great ministry goals as an apostle, as a missionary, someone who was traveling around planting churches in different places in the world, one of his big goals was to care for his converted Jewish brothers those in Jerusalem who were his fellow countrymen, they were Jews by ethnicity, just like he was, who were now believers in Jesus, who were in great need. Paul wanted to serve them, and he wanted to serve them specifically by delivering to them financial aid. And what we are seeing in this letter to the Corinthians, as Paul is asking the Corinthians to contribute to that specific cause, is that serving people takes people. Serving people takes other people and their resources. That if someone is going to be blessed financially, it's going to take other people 
funneling those funds to them. And Paul was not shy about this. At the end of his first letter that we have to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul had already talked to them in person about this, and then in his letter he's giving them instruction and saying, when you guys meet up on Sundays, as each one prospers, set something aside for this big collection so that when I come, we don't need to do a collection, but it's already there. Paul wasn't shy about getting into the details and teaching them, coaching them about how to do this. Paul wasn't afraid to fundraise. That's something that we could take away from this. When it's a worthy, godly cause, Paul wasn't afraid to fundraise. He was just going out there asking other churches to contribute to this cause. Kind of like what I've been doing recently as I've been away on my sabbatical. I've spent some time with people talking about our building expansion here. And I'm not shy. I told a few people, I'm kind of beyond the point of the shame of asking for money. It's not for me, it's for our church. I don't care. I'll ask you for money if I hear you have money. Let's talk about that. Let's, 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 let's chat. Us poor Christians in Utah, we, we meet in a grass hut <laughs> up on a mountain somewhere, and it's, oh, oh, it's miserable. Could you spare some change? No, I'm not lying to people. But, but we, we have this project we're doing, and I'm not shy about asking people to chip in because it's the Lord's work. None of us individually are benefiting. We're collectively benefiting. Well, despite Paul's instruction to the Corinthians, it turns out they were really struggling to get this done. Paul had gotten a, a verbal buy-in from them that they were going to participate in this fundraising, and yet they hadn't done it. They, they struggled to get it done, but eventually they did. Eventually they did what they were supposed to do. And so what I want to do now is leave 2 Corinthians for a moment and go to Romans 15. If you just back up a couple of books, you'll see 1 Corinthians and then Romans. Romans 15 starting in verse 25, let's look at the end of the story as far as this fundraising is concerned. Romans 15, 25, Paul writes to the believers in Italy, in Rome, Italy, and he says to them, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Those are those converted Jews, his fellow countrymen he was longing to serve. Verse 26, he says, for Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia is Greece, this would include those Corinthians, They've been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain." Those were Paul's plans at that time. But you see that they followed through. They had produced their fruit. Paul was to set his seal on this fruit of theirs and get that gift to the Jerusalem saints. But in today's text, we're not at the end of the story. It's good to know that. It's helpful to know that. In today's text, we are in the middle of that story where there was tension, where there was struggle, where Paul perhaps had just the tiniest sliver of doubt that they wouldn't actually follow through. Remember, the Corinthians' minds have been poisoned by false apostles. Their minds were affected by these people who came in after Paul and said, ah, that Paul guy, I don't know if you can trust him. Well, all of a sudden, they're looking at the money they set aside for fundraising, and they said, hmm, should we really give this to Paul? So they're struggling at the time. And let's continue at this zoomed-out level to consider other factors at play here. We're talking about 
Churches helping churches. We're talking about the church at Corinth, or perhaps churches in the surrounding area of Corinth, helping the churches of Jerusalem. We're talking about Christians who are Greeks, who are Gentiles, helping Christians who are Jewish by birth, who are all the way over in Jerusalem. Churches helping churches. Now, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? That a church would help another church. But this is something that all good churches should do. All good churches should care about other good churches. All good churches should have a heart that God's kingdom would grow, not just in their little physical location, but all around the world. Now, there are some prerequisites to this, of course. We're talking about churches helping other true churches. There are false churches out there. There are people that masquerade as Christians who believe something that goes against the Christian faith. There are churches out there that are not real churches. But Paul told us in another letter, in Galatians 6.10, Paul said, Do good to all men as you have opportunity, especially those who are of the household of faith. So if someone meets that test, if someone meets that criteria that he or she is of the household of faith, we should have a special care for that person as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. If there's a church that matches that criteria of being of the household of faith, we should have a special care for them as a church. When there is like-mindedness, when a church has qualified leaders, we see that they, they meet the criteria and that we want to help them. Cooperation, indeed, is quite necessary. Churches cooperating with other churches. Not something you think a lot about, I'm sure. I think a lot about it as a pastor, but maybe you don't. Churches helping churches is impossible to do if we are competitive. You know that there are churches out there that have a spirit of competition, right? It's easy to do, especially for pastors, to be so excited and so energetic about your own church that you want to see it grow, perhaps even to the detriment of others. I would venture to guess that's more of a temptation here in America because we are a capitalistic society. We know that in the world of business, you have competitors, and your whole goal as a business is to crush your competitors like little cockroaches. That's your whole goal. When I was in the business world, we had some competitors. I was a sales guy, and we had some competitors, and there was nothing I wanted more than to crush them. I wanted to go in, make a better pitch, offer a better deal, to make the deal they could have had, but I got it to get the money that they could have had, but my company got it. There are certain drinks that some people in here won't drink because they're loyal to one brand over another because they get their paycheck from a certain brand, right? And in the business world, you look for that competition. You want that competition. In fact, we like that here. That makes every, everybody do better. Competition is good. But churches should not be competitive with churches. Think of these Corinthians. They could have sat back and said, you know, we heard some of those things the Jerusalem church was doing, and I don't really like what they were doing. They don't, they don't deserve our money. I would rather give, you know, keep our dollars local. Something they could have said. Churches helping churches is also impossible if we're being pragmatic about it. I can imagine another thing some of the Corinthians could have said was, well, that's our giving. What if people get so excited to give to the Jerusalem saints that they stop giving here? And then all of a sudden, you know, we, our budget is just shredded. That's pragmatic thinking, isn't it? Now, there can be some wisdom in that. There can be some wisdom, but you have to be so careful. 
Because sometimes wisdom can cross over into human wisdom. Godly wisdom can develop into pragmatism. We have to be so very careful. We need help. Each church needs help from other churches. We need each other. Local churches are not to be silos. Local churches are not to be entirely independent. We recognize here as a non-denominational church, a church that doesn't have anyone from outside of our congregation telling us what to do, that there's a, a good level of independence, that we care for ourselves here. Our governing structure is all here in-house. Our, our giving is local. We don't have a, a, a mother company or something outside keeping us up, a mother church that's keeping us afloat financially. We recognize here that, that independence is good as far as it goes, but it can go too far. In fact, you could think on the other end of this fundraising adventure that Paul is on, that the Jerusalem church could have said, we don't need those Greek dollars. We don't need that Greek money. We can do it all on our own. But churches are to help churches. We are together. We are in this together, advancing the cause of Christ. And this starts in the pew. If we're going to be successful doing this, it starts right where you're sitting as we think about our place in the kingdom. As we think about how willing we are to participate in advancing the gospel. And what we see in this letter is that the Corinthians were initially willing, but they struggled to follow through. Let's look at these verses again, particularly verses 10 and 11. Paul says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. After Paul called upon the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 9, and that's no small thing, by the way, as Tyler said last week, verse 9 is like one of the best verses in the Bible as far as summing up the gospel, these amazing truths about Jesus, that though He was rich, for our sake He became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. I mean, that is... That is amazing. After calling on that example, Paul gives them an imperative in verse 11 when he says, okay, now as it pertains to your giving, finish the job, complete the task. He calls them to complete this goal together, to contribute financially at the local church level, and in so doing, contribute to the universal church level to help the Jerusalem saints by their weekly giving and storing it up their in-house. But as I said, in verse 11, Paul does give them this imperative when he says, finish doing it. But let's look back at verse 8. Notice that Paul says in verse 8 that as he's speaking these things to him, he's speaking this not as a command. Now that's kind of curious. He says, I'm not giving you a command. And if you look at verse 10, which I already read, Paul says this is his opinion. This is his personal judgment in the matter. So how is it that Paul says this is not a command and then he gives them an imperative? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And this really is an imperative. In the Greek mood, it is imperative. Well, I'm thinking here that Paul is getting as close to a command as he can. He's getting not pushy, but still pushing them, if that makes any sense. Paul doesn't want to give them a command on this matter, 
but he wants to keep the issue in front of them. This is a, a delicate balance for any leader, especially when you're working with the church. And it's an all-volunteer basis, right? I can't command any of you to give. I can't command any of you anything that's outside of the Word of God. My authority, my, my vision for your life is all tied up in the Word of God. Everything else will have to be up to opinion and personal conviction. However, there are times when spiritual leaders want to push people. And I think that's exactly what Paul's doing here, is he's pushing them without giving them a command. For Paul, their giving to this cause was not optional. It wasn't optional. He takes significant real estate in this letter to talk about this issue, not only in chapter 8, but also we'll see in chapter 9. So let's pause here to consider where Paul's coming from, why he's being so pushy in this. And it comes from the fact that they had said that they desired to give. Did you notice that? In verse 10, it says, not only were you doing it, but you had the desire to do it. You were the first to have a desire. In verse 11, there was the readiness to desire it. Paul is talking about their willingness that they expressed, their desire that they had communicated to him. And I want us to pick up this from this passage. Christians are to be people who act. And Christians are to be people who act on what God gives them. And that includes the willingness He puts in our hearts. Do you know God puts stuff on your heart? God will put a person on your heart to pray for, to think about. God will put a cause on your heart. God will call missionaries to go different places. We'll look at that next week. God puts certain things on your heart. God gives you certain convictions that are different than other people's convictions. Uh, we are in Utah, my wife and I, as Missourians, we're now in our 10th year in Utah, because God put Utah on our heart. God gave us a desire for Utah. And each year as we go back and visit Missouri, He gives us a deeper, deeper desire for Utah. <laughs> we love coming back. But Christians should be people who act on what God gives them. And this is stewardship. This is stewardship, even with something intangible like a burden or a desire. Paul confirms here to the Corinthians that their desire to help in this cause, to contribute funds, their desire was good, that their ability to help was good. He's, he's affirming them, and he's saying that this desire should not be squelched. Paul is saying here that they should not push down that desire, but that they should embrace it. You perhaps know some people, or maybe you're one yourself, I know I am, who so often uses that phrase, oh, I should fill in the blank. I should do that. And you see, see it again a few days later, oh yeah, I should do that. I should, I should, I should. And sometimes life circumstances are such that we just can't get things done the way that we're supposed to. But there are certainly times when God puts important things on our heart that we squelch. And I think this is specifically true when it comes to caring for other people. I should reach out to him. I should stop by and see her. Where does that desire come from? If you're a Christian, if you're led by the Spirit, God's involved in your life. He's working in your life. And don't leave it at, I should. You hear about a, an opportunity of Jerusalem saints in need. Put yourself in the Corinthian spot. Paul says, don't leave it at I should, but act on what God has given you. When I was a new Christian and 
I was getting discipleship from the youth pastor at the, the church I was attending, there was something I noticed one day in his office. It was a little wooden coin that had a word on it I had never seen before. So I'm going to see if the kids here in our church can, can figure out what this says. Let me make sure it's right side up, because I tried to replicate it on a bigger piece of paper. Have you ever seen this word? You know this word? You ever seen that? To it. Can you say that? To it? To it. Now, this just isn't just any to it. It's a round to it. You ever met anybody that needs to get around to it? Well, you can give them one of these. And I think, yeah, okay, little little humor to lighten the load here. Uh, I think that's essentially what Paul was saying to these Corinthians. Time to get around to it. It was time for them to act. And as Christians, we should be known for completing what God has called us to. I saw an example of this in Proverbs this week. In Proverbs 24, you can turn there if you'd like, but it'll be on the screen. Proverbs 24, starting in verse 30. Here's an example of someone who didn't have a round to it. He needed to get one. <laughs> it says, Proverbs 24, 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. How many times had that sluggard looked and seen what needed to be done and said, Oh, I should. I need another nap though. See, his vice was laziness. And we all have our particular vices. This Corinthian church should have been participating in this giving. And their vice was fear of man. They had trusted in false teachers instead of the apostle, and that had stopped them from doing what God had called them to do. As Christians, we consider this kind of stuff stewardship. It's a stewardship issue, and we have to continually go back to the example of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 9 of this chapter, the grace of Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. Think of how Jesus stewarded His calling from the Father. He was sent by the Father. He willingly embraced His call by the Father. And He gave up everything for this master plan of saving the world. What, the, what a perfect example of stewardship. We are to remember stewardship day by day in all that God has given us and called us to. But more than that, you could say even beyond that, Christians are to be people of integrity, people who keep our word, people who mean what we say and say what we mean. So it's not only the internals that we have to worry about, it's also the externals. We have to be careful about the words that come out of our mouths and the pledges that we make. One thing you'll notice through chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians is that several times Paul references their stated desire. Not just their wishful thinking that he picked up on through their subtle actions. He says they stated their desire to him. And Paul understands that as a commitment. These Christians had made a verbal commitment to participate in this fundraising. And so Paul holds them accountable. We all need people in our lives who are going to hold us accountable, don't we? That Corinthian church needed Paul to hold them accountable. As I mentioned, their relationship with him had been very rocky. 
And perhaps you know what it's like when you've made a pledge to somebody, perhaps a financial pledge. And you made that pledge when you were on good terms. And then later, when you're no longer on good terms, you look at that money and you think, well, that's my money, I can just keep it. Hmm. Paul here is calling to remembrance what they had said. In chapter 9, we won't turn there yet, but in chapter 9, verse 5, Paul calls their gift a promise. Paul uses the term that they made a promise to do this. And he goes on to say that their failure to give would be shameful. That's the word he uses. It would be shameful if they did not do what they said they would do. So what can we learn here? Well, beyond just acting on what God lays on our hearts, we also need to be careful about saying that we will do things, don't we? We need to be careful about saying, I will. Paul was holding them accountable for this, that their pledge would be upheld. I can just hear one of those Corinthians in Greek saying, but that was last year, because it had been a year since they had pledged this. Paul remembers. Yeah, it's been a year. Yeah, a lot of things happened in a year. But Paul says, this is what you said. These were your words. And I think all of this can be considered a test of the Corinthians' sincerity toward other believers and the sincerity of their service to the Lord. Let me share with you 1 John 3.17. This is a very strong verse. It says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. We know the answer here. John here is calling this a test of salvation. How could the love of God be abiding in you if you see your brother in need and you have the ability to help? And you say, no. If you shut your heart toward him, it's a very serious issue. For Paul, it was just as serious as it was for John. And there's one more consideration in this passage. Paul actually comes at this from another angle. Maybe you'll be surprised at the angle that he comes at it from. I was a bit surprised. The angle he's taking here in verses 12 through 15 is that there should be equality among believers. So let's pick up in verse 12 and keep reading. Paul writes to them saying, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul is here communicating to the Corinthians that they were able to share with others, they could share with other believers, because they had an abundance. Do you see that word? That's a good word, the word abundance. That's what the Corinthians had. Let's consider that word first. That word basically means leftovers. Some of your refrigerators have an abundance, right? There are leftovers. The word means more than enough. It could mean too much. It means overflow or extra. Paul is saying that this Corinthian church had extra that they could share. Now, what would be extra to the Apostle Paul? There's a fascinating question for you. Consider his experience. He's, he's already told them in this letter, he's faced sleeplessness, he's been imprisoned, he's been hungry, 
I, I get the impression that Paul's the kind of guy, if he had two halves of a sandwich, he had one half too much. He would say, that's extra. He would give it to somebody else. So Paul probably has a pretty low standard about what is enough. But whatever angle he was specifically coming from with this word, he's saying that the Corinthians did, in fact, have extra. They had an abundance. Now, as long as we're continuing to make application here to ourselves, let's ask ourselves, are we more like the needy saints in Jerusalem or are we more like the Corinthian saints? The answer is obvious, isn't it? We are not needy like the Jerusalem saints were. Because when Paul said they were needy, you better believe they were needy. But the Corinthian church had an abundance. And I would say we here today have quite the abundance that we get to steward for God's glory. God has richly blessed us with many things. And we are much more like the Corinthians than we are the Jerusalem saints. The bottom line truth is that we are a wealthy people. One of the guys I've been meeting with, one of those guys that I heard had money that I wanted to meet with about our building expansion, I met with recently. And when I say he has money, he's a millionaire dozens of times over. And he's a dear, sweet brother in the Lord, a true, real Christian. And he told me when we were meeting, we met for a little over two hours one day, and he said that he's going to stop using the word wealthy, and he's going to start using the word abundance. He, he thinks it's a more biblical way of looking at things, that he has an abundance, and he's stewarding an abundance for God's glory. And one of the uh, aspects of that conversation we had was that abundance isn't a bad word. Some people will look at someone rich, especially in our day and age in our country, someone who's quote-unquote rich, we're all rich basically in America, there are a few exceptions, but they'll look at someone who would fit the top 1%, the super rich, something like that, and look at it as a bad thing, that that person needs to give up their wealth, that person needs to give up what they have for the sake of everybody else. That's not the way Christians should analyze that situation. No, Christians should look at abundance as God's gift. And for the Christian who has an abundance, our goal should be to steward that for His glory. Instead of looking at, looking at it as something to be guilty about, what if we looked at our abundance this way? How might God use our abundance for His purposes? Instead of looking at all of our stuff, our bank account, our sheds or whatever, all the stuff that we have and maybe feeling guilty about it. What if we looked at it and said, how could God use this? Because God's given it to you. God's given you the ability to have what you have, and it's a stewardship issue that God could use greatly. And let's connect that thought with the principle that we see in verse 12, where Paul writes to them saying that their giving is acceptable according to what a person has, not to what a, per a person does not have. We should participate in giving, we should participate in the kingdom according to what we have, not what we don't have. And for the Corinthians as a whole, Paul says that their giving should be according to their abundance, and that will be a great blessing to those who do not have. They could be a great blessing to those who are without in providing equality in the household of faith. What's the implication here? Well, the implication is that, let's face it, wealthy people have a greater obligation to contribute to the equality in the church. 
They do. Needy people who are truly in need can't contribute to the equality. They're the ones in need. That's why we call them needy. And those with an an abundance have a greater obligation to contribute. Now, Paul clarifies in this passage that he's not calling for the affliction of the Corinthians so that the Jerusalem saints could be at ease. I bet that was a retort that came up after Paul left. Perhaps one of those false apostles said, I bet Paul just wants the Jews to live a life of ease. He wants us to suffer so that those in Jerusalem could have all the gold. And Paul clearly says, no, that's not what I'm doing. Paul isn't trying to make the rich poor and the poor rich. That's not his goal. His goal is equality to lift up the needy, to give them a better standing. What Paul wanted to see, what Paul's dream scenario was, was that the heart of Christ would be modeled by the Corinthians, that they would be caring for the poor out of their rich abundance. You see, with your abundance that God has given you, you can model the heart of Christ, who, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. You you can steward your abundance in that view that you're modeling Jesus. John MacArthur, in his commentary, says this, There was nothing wrong with the Corinthians having more than the Jerusalem believers, but it would have been wrong for them to be unwilling to share. Christians are not isolated individuals, but members of one body. Therefore, they are responsible to meet one another's needs. This is what we do out of our extra, out of our leftovers, out of our abundance. Now, there are, of course, some people who do not have an abundance. There are Christians who who lack, who do not have that abundance. And so I think that's part of the reason why Paul says in verse 12, to give in accordance with what you have, not with what you don't have. Paul's not saying, if you're lacking, just stop giving. That's not it. But give in accordance with what you have. Don't overextend yourself and certainly don't go into debt. Paul would never advocate, because God would never advocate, for someone going into debt to give. That would truly be robbing Peter to pay Paul, wouldn't it? How quickly could we get that building done if we said, hey, everybody go get a $10,000 loan and uh, we'll we'll knock this bad boy out. Well, then we just created a bunch more problems, didn't we? So we give in accordance with what we have. That's the principle. And the goal is that Christians would all care for one another willingly because God cares about willingness. God cares about equality. Now, someone may wonder at this point, why didn't God just give us all the same amount? Why didn't God just cut out the middleman? You've got rich Christians, poor Christians, and everything in between. Now, it's kind of a silly question, right? What's God going to do, just like drop stuff in your bank account? I have heard stories from Christians where that happened, where they were at their, they were just, you know, right at the very end of their rope and money showed up. Okay, so I'm not saying that's beyond God's means. But what's God's regular way of operating in our lives here, outside of the miraculous? It's stewardship, isn't it? You know, God gets stuff done in the world through people that His, his plan here is that He would use image bearers to accomplish His means. All the way back in Genesis 1, even before sin entered the world, God was all about stewardship. What did He tell Adam about the garden? Work it and keep it to subdue the earth, to express dominion over all of creation as an image bearer of God. Stewardship is good. It existed before the fall. 
What does Jesus instruct people to do in Matthew 6 with their money? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. No robber can break in and steal. That takes your participation. It takes stewardship. God's kingdom program in the world involves you doing stuff. It's amazing. It's, it's an amazing thought that He doesn't need us, but He wants us. And in so doing, we bring glory to Him. This is touching on the idea of spiritual disciplines. The fact that we would take what God has given and use it in this life for His glory in a disciplined manner, which has future ramifications, by the way. There are rewards tied to this. There's a judgment for Christians, and that judgment will be about our stewardship. It will not be about our salvation, praise God. It'll be about our stewardship. And so we are to have this at the front of our minds. Last week, Jerry was teaching Sunday school on spiritual discipline. And one of the illustrations that he used about the overall idea of being a disciplined Christian, being spiritually disciplined as a Christian, was uh, sports, athletics. Have you ever seen an undisciplined professional athlete? Now, if you watch golf, maybe, okay? But, but uh, no, you recognize that someone became a professional athlete through much discipline, not outside of discipline, but through much discipline. And I think another great example is money. Have you ever seen somebody who's done well with their investments without being a disciplined investor? And so in our life, spiritually speaking, we have to be disciplined in our service for the Lord if we are wanting to please Him in all respects as we've been called to do and the investments that we make through this life. Why didn't God just give us all the same amount? Well, He cares about stewardship. And He is also, I want you to hear this too, God has also primarily put it on the church to care for people. God has primarily put it on His people in the world to care for people in the world. That sounds like a big task. But remember, we're not the only church that there is. There are lots of us. And so as churches help churches, as Christians partner with Christians, we can come together and truly serve people and express the love of Christ through the way we care for others. This call for equality in the church reveals the interdependence of local churches. We are, truly are dependent on one another. In verse 14, Paul says, look, at this present time, your abundance, Corinthians, that's a supply for the Jerusalem saints' need. But look what he brings up here. So that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Yeah, you've got a good today, Corinthians, but you don't know what tomorrow holds. Paul is saying one day, the Jerusalem saints may be supporting you financially. We are interdependent. We are to care for one another because we're not competitors. He uses the example of manna also in verse 15. It doesn't say manna. Maybe you didn't know it came from that passage, but uh, he's quoting Exodus 16 here, where God miraculously provided for His people through this flake-like, snow-like thing that just showed up that they could eat. That was kind of like a bread substance. God just caused it to appear as His people were wandering. Isn't that an amazing thing, manna? And then the quail too. Just God was providing. That's who He is. He's a provider. And He gives them this manna 
And when the manna showed up, he gave his people an instruction. He said, gather as much as you need. And it says that the one who gathered much didn't have an abundance. And the one who gathered little had no lack. Whether God was making sure that those who gathered much didn't gather too much and miraculously raptured that manna away or whatever he did, or if they all went back and they sorted it out. Okay, what did you get? What did you get? And they distributed as they had need. God made sure that each family had exactly what they needed. And God will care for his churches as other churches come alongside and participate. That churches would care for churches and we wouldn't have that lack. We see this in the early church too, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Those first believers who were in Jerusalem, it says they had all things in common. And they were distributing to each one as everyone had need, so that no one among them was needy. What a beautiful picture. I, I've had somebody before, this was several years ago, say, see, God's a socialist. Go to Acts 2 and Acts 4. They all gave everything they had and then it got redistributed. He's a socialist. No, no, no. God's not a socialist, okay? That was all voluntary. That was all among redeemed Christians, okay? Those are two very important things to point out, among other things. But God does care about equality, doesn't He? That's Paul's whole point here. He cares about fairness. He cares about equality. And it would be wrong for the Corinthians in their abundance to close their heart toward those other saints. One day the tables could be turned, Paul says, and the Corinthians in turn would be cared for. That's God's great design, that we would care. If you're a Christian here this morning, listening to this, reading this passage, here's just one of those big idea takeaways you could have. God wants you to care. And He wants you to express that care with what He has given you. He puts burdens on your heart. He gives you possessions. He works in your life in so many ways. He's calling you to participate, to come alongside His work and be used as an instrument in His hand. So think about that. Pray about that and see how He might make application in your life. Okay, let's pray. Father, again, we come to You thankful because you have given us the greatest gift of all, an indescribable gift. You've given us the gift of yourself, that we have access to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to make application from this passage that we've studied here this morning, that we would go to you and ask you to point out what it is you would call us to do, what willingness, what readiness you would have for us, and that we would be convicted to the point of action, that we would seek to follow through for your honor and for your glory to the praise of your name, that we would want to participate in your work in the world, not just on an individual level, but also as a church. Help us, each one of us, to keep our eyes open and to keep our heart open, that we would be led, guided, directed by you. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, your kindness, and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.